Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is great to have you all here. Every Sunday I'm seeing new faces or new to me faces, and it's awesome to have you here with us. Welcome. It is great to have you here for our service. Now, I want to start the service just by asking you a question. You can yell things out. No, don't yell things out. Just think about this question. It's probably best that you just think about it. And the question is, do you have a lot of patience? <laughs> Derek, I said you don't have to answer. <laughs> um, but yeah, do you have a lot of patience? Do you have a lot of patience when it comes to your kids? Do you have a lot of patience when it comes to your loved ones? What about your work? How much patience do you have for your work? Or what about um, your government? <laughs> yeah, don't answer. Think it through. Pray through it. Do you have a lot of patience? I'm going to tell you a little bit of, of a story today to start with. Um, I'm married to Jessica. This summer will be 23 years. Yeah. Yeah. That woman has, ha has a lot of patience. Um, <laughs> somebody knows me. Um, yeah, so I'm married to Jessica, but when we first met, I was 17 years old. Don't, you don't have to do math. And um, I was 17 years old, she was 16, and we just started dating, and it was kind of exciting, and I really, really liked her, and, and was getting to know her, and liked her parents, and got to know her family a little bit, and uh, found out really quickly that her family is a skiing family. It's a family that goes skiing in the winter. That's their thing that they do as a family. They have the brothers would snowboard, the parents would ski, Jessica and her sister would ski, and that's just what they did. That was their winter holidays. They'd always drive to the mountains, and they would ski. So I knew during certain periods they'd be gone, they'd be skiing, and I wouldn't see her for a little bit. But then there came a time, like pretty quickly in our relationship, that her parents invited me to come skiing with them on their family trip. Like, I was 17 years old, I'm just, it's a pretty brave thing to do, to invite a 17-year-old, this weirdo who's dating your daughter, to now say, hey, come on a trip with us. And I was really excited about it. I thought, wow, what a privilege, what an honor. They're in inviting me to this trip. They're, they're like really good skiers, because they've all done it since they were like really, really little. And uh, I hadn't skied very much at all. And I thought, okay, but I'm fairly athletic, like, how hard can it be? I mean, gravity does all the work, really, right? You just got to stay upright. Um, but because they're a skiing family, I also thought, okay, well, wait a minute. They have all their equipment, and I don't have any equipment. And I was an immigrant to Canada, so for me, one of the things that were hypersensitive for me was how do Canadians do family, right? Because I had my family contacts that I understood really well, and we as Ukrainians knew what we were doing. But how did Canadians live their life? How did they do holidays? What did they do? What was the things you're allowed to say and not allowed to say? What are the things you're allowed to do and not to do? So I was really hypersensitive to all these things. These social conventions were like a thing for me. I had to make sure I don't screw up. I had to make sure I fit in. And so I'm going on this trip, and I don't have gear. And I thought, okay, well, I can't rent gear because then I'll look like an amateur. Like, I'll look like I don't know what I'm doing. So I was working at that time already, 17. I was working at McDonald's, and I had some savings. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take my savings and go buy a whole bunch of gear uh, just so I can fit in. So I went to um, 
a ski shop. I think it was Doug's Spoken Sport on 8th Street. Back in the day, they had ski, maybe they still do. They had ski stuff and snowboarding stuff. So I bought my skis, bought the boots, bought the goggles, bought the look. I had it all. Spent too much money. I was broke, but I was like, okay, but I'm going to fit in, and I have to have put in a really good, like, you know, impression on this new family. And so got everything and went skiing with the family. And when we got there, I noticed that they all said, well, you know, we should maybe do some easy runs first because we haven't skied for a little bit. Immediately, in my mind, being prideful, I thought, oh, they're doing easy runs because they think I can't ski. Oh, no, no, we, we're, let, let's, let's just, let's, you know what? I'm ready. Let's go to the double black diamonds. <laughs> if you're not a skier, that's like, you know, that's the hardest run. I think it starts with, you know, bunny hills green and then blue, black, and then double black. I think that's how it works. And so I was like, no, no, let's do it. Let's, I'm ready for this. Like, I, I can ski. You guys don't have to, you know, slow it down for me. Um, and the whole trip was really interesting, just a little back of it, is that Jessica's two brothers, she's the oldest, she has two brothers who were kind of indifferent that I came, they're like, all right, whatever, and a younger sister who was really annoyed that there's this weirdo that's coming on their family trip. So it really was shaping up to be one of those, like, Disney family movies where this, like, boyfriend shows up and things are going to go wacky, and it, stay with me, they kind of do, um, so I say, no, let's go. Let's, we got to do double blocks. We got to go. This is easy. I can skate. So skiing's probably the same thing. And uh, she talked me down and said, well, let's just do uh, a single block, like just a black diamond. Let's start there and work our way to double blocks. All right. Now let me ask you a question, another question. Have you ever had your lips opened up so much like busted up so much that you thought that they may never recover and look like lips again? I have. <laughs> there's, a, there's a quote here that fits really nicely in this part of the story that my friend Donnie Sparrow said in our devotional, and he said, often I realize I wasn't ready for the thing I wanted when I wanted it. And uh, that skiing experience and the lip experience really taught me that patience and humility really go hand in hand. Now, that's a silly story, of course, although I lived it. But my question remains, how patient are you? How patient are you when it comes to your dreams, to your hopes, to your expectations? Are you satisfied? Or do you ask things like, why are things not happening the way I thought they would? You see, life makes us ask questions, doesn't it? Specifically when things don't go as you hoped. Like when things are going well and your job's going good and family's going good and, and life's going good and your hobbies are going great, you don't really ask questions. You're kind of like, this is great. Whatever I'm doing, I'll keep doing. And you don't really approach any serious question because things are good. Why would you, right? But then... You lose a job, or your spouse leaves, or your friends abandon you, or a loved one gets sick, or maybe your kids stop calling, and you begin to ask questions, good questions. Or maybe, maybe you're the kind of person who doesn't ask questions, maybe you just get really mad, and you begin to go scorch earth on everything and everyone in sight. And it's hard to be around you. 
Or maybe you isolate and you pull back and you pull away from everybody and you hide and you say, I don't need anybody. I, I don't want anybody. I'm tired of it all. And you blame everyone and everything. And you blame your friends or maybe your family, maybe your work, maybe the government, maybe the church, and maybe God. Life wasn't supposed to be this way. And for some of you, you may say, you know what, and I have been really patient in my life. I've actually done the right things, and yet things are not, still not happening for me. And you begin to wonder, where is God in the midst of all of this? Why is he not showing up as I thought he would show up? Why is he not doing what I think he says in the Gospels, in the New Testament, and in the, in the good news of Jesus that he would do? Or maybe you ask or have had somebody ask you the question, if God is so good, why is there so much evil in the world? And you see, when I'm confronted with those questions or when I deeply wrestle with them myself in my own soul, in my own heart, this is the part of me that just loves the scriptures. And not the scriptures to give me some pat answer, but the scriptures that in, invite me into a story of very real people who have gone through all the emotional, all the spiritual, and all the physical pain in real time, who have wrestled with real encounters with God and his sometimes distance and silence and slowness. The scriptures properly understood rarely actually give us a pat answer or some kind of easy hallmark solution. Instead, instead, they invite us into the depths of pain where we find God's love. It doesn't take us out of the tensions of life, but rather offers us hope amongst the tensions. And so today, I want us to look at a, a really interesting um, letter in the Bible, one that isn't talked about a lot, actually. I, I mean, I think, I think some people do. I haven't heard people talk about it a lot. And it's found in the New Testament in the second half of the Bible. And it's a letter written by Peter, and we're going to look at his second letter. So you can get your Bibles or apps ready to your uh, Bible app or physical Bible. You can open to 2 Peter. It's in the second part of the Bible, towards the end. And Peter writes this letter, and he, now, of course, Peter is one of Jesus' inner circle closest students. Like, he's right in there. He's with the 12, he's with the three. He's, he's right shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. He's the guy who's writing this letter. And he's writing it around 64, 67 AD, and Peter's an older man now. And Jesus has been gone for about 30 years at this point. And the church is kind of growing and, and spreading, but it's also seeing persecution, and it's, and it's becoming restless. This is kind of a bit, of, it's important to have the context of the letter before we really jump in, because, because this was assumed when Peter wrote it, and us being removed, we sometimes forget what the actual context that was going on. And so the context of this letter is to combat, Peter is writing it to wrestle with beliefs and activities of groups of people that are rising up and are beginning to give a different view, different vision of Jesus. See, the people thought they were ready. They came to Christ. They heard the stories. They listened to apostles. They listened to, to Paul and Peter and James. And they're growing. And then Jesus is just not showing up. Like, he's been gone for 30 years, and he hasn't been back. And the way they thought he would respond to them, he's not responding. There's more trials, more pain. There's wars. And they begin to ask questions. Where's Jesus? Why is he not responding the way I thought he would? 
And because life isn't going as they thought it should, they're beginning to actually teach a new view of grace about Jesus. They're actually taking some teaching and distorting it. And so Peter's writing this letter to correct these movements and say, wait a minute, be careful. This is not what faith is about. In fact, if you're not really sure about some of the context of our letters, can I mention to you that we have Bible Project? Did you know that? We have, we have a time here, 9.30 every morning, every Sunday morning, not every morning, every Sunday morning, where we look at uh, books of the Bibles, themes of the Bibles, characters of the Bibles, and we, list, we try to understand all the background stuff that's going on. So if you, this stuff is like resonating with you or you're hearing it for the first time, can I invite you to Bible Project? It's an awesome time where we just, we, we, we unpack a theme or a story and we have conversations. It's very friendly and welcoming and open. So anyways, that's enough about that. But there's stuff that's happening that Peter wants to address. And a lot of the stuff that was going on in this time is this gnostic belief that's rising up. So when you read Paul and we're reading Peter and James, they're actually countering a lot of this thinking. This is why they're writing it. And a lot of the gnostic thinking was to say that the spirit is good, so nurture your spirit, be religious in your spirit, but your body actually doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter because Jesus hasn't come back. So it must be a spiritual thing. It can't be a bodily thing because they say he resurrected, but he's not back. It's been 30 years. So you know what? Work on your spirit, but in your body, you can indulge in whatever you want. You can try whatever you want. You only live once. It's in Peter, YOLO. No, it's not. I'm just, thank you for laughing, two of you. But it's okay. This is, this is the context of the letter. And, and Peter wants to correct and say, okay, look, what you're saying about the body isn't right, and what you're saying about Jesus not coming isn't right, and what you're saying about the Spirit is you're misunderstanding the grace. And this is kind of the context of all of it. But I wish this group was just kind of thinking about these things for themselves, but they're actually beginning to spread this idea of grace, this idea that it doesn't matter what you do, God will just forgive you, just nurture the Spirit, and live out your body whatever way you want. So this is the context. So if you have your Bibles, if you've opened them to 2 Peter, we're going to jump right in chapter 3, starting in verse 8. You've heard the context. Peter's correcting things. And then he says this to the church and to us. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. It's interesting that as, as Peter's beginning to correct the church, as he's teaching them, as he's calling them out, as he's explaining who Jesus is and what he actually taught, he confronts time. And he says, you need to know that for the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Peter, who has seen Jesus and lived with him and studied under him, understand that God's perspective on all things is much different than our natural baseline. He understands that, for, and he saw this firsthand even before Jesus, because Peter was a good Jewish boy. He knew from a young age that how long the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah and how long they were talking that he was going to come. He knows that there's been a huge long wait, and he has seen his people frustrated waiting for God before. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament, at the first part of the Bible, the, the as God called out the Jewish people to be the people to be the light for all other nations, he knows as they were wrestling and doing all their stuff with God and wars and listening to God and not listening to God, crying out to God, going to exile, coming out of exile, all that stuff that was happening and the prophets were writing, he knows that the, when the last prophet wrote, there was at least a 400-year silence and no action 
till John the Baptist and Jesus show up. You see, Peter's aware that time is different for God. And of course he wanted, and of course the Jewish nation would have wanted the Messiah to come and save him a certain way, but he didn't. Not till the time was right. In fact, we know this from the prophet Elijah. When he encountered God, he didn't encounter him in what? In the earthquake or in the fire? He encountered him in a small, still voice. Silence is one of the most powerful ways that God sometimes communicates with us. The problem with silence of God, especially in the time of violence, upheaval, and wars, is, or when things are not going our way, is we are often frustrated, proud, and angry to hear anything. So for Peter, this notion of waiting is not only uncommon, it is necessary, as Peter himself, when he encountered Jesus, had a vision of what Messiah would look like, and when Jesus stepped out of that vision, Peter actually confronted Jesus and said, wait a minute, you're not doing this, and Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Yeah. Peter understands that there's a mission and there's a calling, and the time is worked out perfectly in God, and is not a time that we wish it would be. Peter goes on to say, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, verse 9, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, Peter says, don't misunderstand God's mission as I did once. God isn't slow as we understand time, world events, politics, wars, death, life, peace. No, he's not slow or even silent how we understand silence. No, God is patient. He doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want you to perish because he's for you because he's for the world. Think about that. You see, sometimes we come to Peter and we see all these really strong statements and we begin to get on our mighty proud horse of saying, we are in the right side and these guys are gonna, this is gonna happen to them. And yet Peter brings us back and says, wait a minute, God is patient because he's for you, because he doesn't want anyone to perish. Peter tells us that God wants everyone to come to repentance. Repentance here is an interesting Greek word, metanoia is how you would say it, which means, by the way, metanoia, you can kind of, so then if somebody asks you, repent, what does that mean? You can say metanoia, like Greek. You don't know that? You can be like a biblical expert. It's cool. Anyways, it really means reversal of one's guilt, a reformation, um, a reversal of a living and thinking in a certain direction. So if I'm living in a direction and I'm thinking in a direction that's actually proud and destructive and angry and, does, and I don't know God and I'm living for myself. God is patient, hoping that I would change and come to him, that I would, come, that I would repent, that I would reverse my way of thinking, my way of living, my way of understanding. And he's doing that because he's patient with me. See, God's patience gives us at least, these two verses gives us at least three powerful truths that will, I want us to unpack to help us to nourish our minds and rest our hearts. And the first part I want us to look at here as we look that God is patient is we want to look at the truth that for God, as Peter tells us, the time is not time. 
That's a weird thing to say, right? Time is not time. But what he's saying is that time for God is not the same way as we think about linear time. And Peter really is just quoting Psalms 90, where the psalmist says, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. See, when we think of with the world's vast existence, it's easy to feel dwarfed into insignificance when we think of all the slowness of human progress. It's easy to become discouraged and even pessimistic. And when we look, and I don't know if you're like me and you love watching those nature documentary or space documentary, and the space is multiplying and bending and growing, and, and science, I'm not a scientist, so if I misspeak, please forgive me. I just like these shows. And they talk about science, maybe time and space isn't how we understand it. Maybe there's multiple universes. It's catching up to the idea that for God, a thousand days is like one and one like a thousand. See, Peter's addressing people who are saying, well, Jesus has been gone for 30 years. Where is he? I thought you said it's imminent. He's coming back. I guess he's not. I guess all that matters is my spirit. And Peter's saying, no, 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 wait a minute. Don't get restless and pessimistic. Don't reimagine what grace is all about. Be comforted in the thought of a God who's using all of eternity, however that actually looks and works. He's using all of eternity to work so that no one would perish. It is only against the background of eternity that things appear in their true proportions and assume their real value. Then in the sight of eternity, your life matters. That you matter. That God is for you and is patient with you as he is with me so that you would not perish. It's comforting to know for me that God is actually ahead of me, that he was behind me, above me, below me, that, that, his, that his work in eternity is working even when I fail, that he's patient and awaiting that I would not perish. God in eternity, ever patiently loving us into his presence. Time is not time. The second thing I want us to notice here is that time is an opportunity. We can also see from this passage that time is an opportunity for us because God not only is waiting on us and is patient with us and is calling us to repent, is calling us to turn, to see the world for what it is, to see his creation and his goodness for what it is, to not be clouded by all the things that confuse us and enrage us and make us proud and make us think of the world a certain way, yet God is calling us to him. But yet, he's also inviting us to share that goodness with other people. It's an opportunity, not only for you not to perish, not only for you to make things right and come to God, but also to help others see the world clearer. You see, we gather, and I'm talking about Church Universal, we gather on Sundays all around the world as Christians to proclaim that, yeah, this week I might have messed up, and God, I need you. And God, I praise you because you're amazing and you're beyond my time and my comprehension of time. And so we gather together at least once a week to say, I can't do this on my own. But then we also invite our friends, our neighbors, to know this goodness and this opportunity 
to ask for forgiveness and to be loved and cared for. You see, time is an opportunity for us. It's a gift of mercy, not only for us, but for us to extend to others. So it's not just about us coming once a week. It's about us recognizing that there's actually a mission in God's waiting and patience for us to be able to know the goodness of God. It is an opportunity to develop ourselves and to help others. It is an opportunity to take one step nearer to God. And thirdly, I want us to notice that time, so we have time is not time, time is an opportunity, and the third thing is time is gracious. There's another echo of truth which we see throughout the entire New Testament, through the, uh, through the entire story of Jesus and his church. And God, Peter says, does not wish any to perish. God, says Apostle Paul, I'm going to just jump through some things because we read what Peter said, what Paul says, Romans 11, Paul says, Verse 32, for God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. In his letter to Timothy, in tremendous phrase, speaks of God who wants, who wants all people to be saved and to come, to come to a knowledge of the truth. And even in the old story, in the Old Testament of God's work with his people, Ezekiel hears God ask. I love this verse. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Over and over again, the scriptures shine for us this glint of the larger hope, the character of God who is so patient that all could come to know him. A God who loves the world and will bring the world to himself. Friends, I'm so thankful that God is patient for us because I am very impatient. And because I'm so very impatient, it's interesting, it's important for us to encounter scripture, scriptures as a whole when they talk about the patience of God. And I want us to look now at another letter that Paul wrote to Ephesians, and he writes this to the church in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, be completely humble and gentle, and be patient, bearing with one another in love. Well, with, with what, in regards to what we just talked about, God's patience, what do you notice in this command that Paul writes to the church? Let me read it again. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. What do you notice in this verse? Do you notice the fact that, the, that patience, our topic, comes after humility? Do you recognize that you cannot have patience until humility is exercised and practiced in your life? You see, Paul is not just saying a nice statement, be, be humble, you know, be kind, be patient, bear with one another. He's actually giving us a great psychological reality that God created in us that patience comes after humility is developed, exercised, and practiced. When we learn humility, when we conquer our pride, which I wish when I went skiing, we can then understand godly patience of waiting so that others can benefit without desiring destruction of other people. It's easy to be impatient with people who believe differently than you when you don't have humility. It's easy to actually want destruction of other people 
when you haven't developed humility. Paul reminds us that we must work out humility so that we can be kind, so that we can be patient, so that then we can actually bear with one another. The incredible truth about patience is that humility must be birthed and grown in our life first. This emotional, spiritual reality sinks in when we practice and exercise humility each day. Hoping for the benefits of others, not wishing against them. Not just wishing for our own needs, our own wants, and our own hopes, but developing a humility to want for others to flourish and to thrive. Let me connect this idea a little bit more here with you with using the example of Jesus. Paul then writes to the church of Philippi, and he says this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, the very famous writing. And he says, in your relationships, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. God didn't use his power to corrupt or manipulate. He didn't use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus humbled himself in an act of mercy, kindness, and love so that we could have it all. Jesus humbled himself and is now patient with you and I, with us, so that you could have all the opportunity to know him. You see, when we don't work on, our, on humility, we, when we don't grow patient, as Christ has shown us, we set up kingdoms with ourselves as a king. And we know what we want, and we know how we want it, and, we, and when we want it, and we demand it. We deceive ourselves into believing that our timing for all things, for big things like marriage, career move, everyday pleasures, like even like simple cup of coffee, is right and reasonable, and you should have it, and who's ever to question me? But a person of patience consistently breathes the calming thought that God is indeed sovereign over time. And here's the deep reality of this that God never asks of us what he himself did not do. He doesn't just say, be humble and be patient. He becomes humble and patient. He takes up the cross of a criminal so that we would not perish, so that we would have a way out, so that we could approach God in eternity who's patiently waiting so, when things don't go the way you want, the way I expect, when what we thought, when we, when we thought it would be different, when we're not sure why, not yet, or will it ever, will we practice and exercise humility so that we can love one another well? When things don't go the way you and I expect, when we thought it would be different, when we're not sure why not yet or will it ever, can we breathe in the goodness of God and know that he's patient and in control 
even in those moments, that he's loving us well into eternity. Friends, can I encourage us to root ourselves and enjoy the hope that God is actually patient and he's for us so we don't perish but have eternal life to the fullest. That he's giving us knowledge that time is not time and that time is an opportunity and that time is gracious. Now Peter in the next verse does say this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. But Peter reminds the church, us, and those that were reading this letter, is that time is not time, but God is coming. Time is an opportunity to not perish. And God will return. And the word fire here is actually a refining of all things made new, new heavens and new earth. And all things done will be laid bare. So take the opportunity to step into the love of God because he's patient so that none of us would perish. God is patient so that when all things are made new, you will not perish because he is for you and not against you. Time is not time. Time is an opportunity and time is gracious. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your patience. God, we thank you that in your humility, you came into this world and you changed all things so that we could have life. Forgive us, God, when we go in directions and put blinders on and don't understand your grace or begin to abuse it or use it and begin to be blind to it. Forgive us. Help us to step into a direction towards you, into your loving arms that you so graciously and freely extend. Thank you that you're so patient with me. Thank you, God, for your goodness. We praise in your name. Amen.